Well, we're making our way through Genesis, and you know, tonight I want to try and tackle two uh, chapters. Really, this uh, stretch here, 40 through 50, is really just the story of Joseph and Jacob. And, and Joseph going down, we saw that, and now he's down in Egypt and lifted up to second in command and really in command altogether except for the throne. And, um, you know, but it's a, it's a long story and, and it's great to read through from front to back if you want to do that on your own, um, just to see how it all flows together. But we'll try and take a bite out of two chapters tonight and um, maybe make a little application if we can uh, from some of what's in there. So... Um, I'm going to go ahead and read, should I just read one and then come back? I think I'm going to read both of them. It's a long stretch here, 60 verses or so and 70, and then we'll come back, keep the story flowing. And so when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. And so Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin uh, with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men, and your servants were not spies. And he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, you are spies. And in this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any wrath in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so he put them all together in prison for three days. And then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered and said, Didn't I say to you, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. 
and he turned himself away from them and he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money there. There it was in the mouth of the sack. And so he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? And then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies, we are twelve brothers, sons of our father, One is no more, and the youngest is with our father to this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know you are honest men. Leave me one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so shall I know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men, and I'll grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons, if enough I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down on my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Uh, We'll just start there and go through a little bit. Um, By way of background, Jacob is a sojourner, still a sojourner, a pilgrim living among the Canaanites. Canaanites, like Abraham and Isaac, were before him. As far as he knows, Joseph is, is long dead. And uh, that was his firstborn by Rachel, whom he loved, who's dead. And it's been 20 years. And meanwhile, Joseph has been prospering in Egypt, and he's now 37 or 38 years old and has supreme authority over all of Egypt except for the throne of Pharaoh. And now the famine has begun. And uh, verses 1 through 5, the famine was great, but they were just standing around looking at each other and, uh, you know, thinking this is it. We're all going to die. And so Jacob says to him, what are you guys doing? What are you just looking at each other for? Let's go down to get you down to Egypt. And um, it was Abraham who had gone back in uh, Genesis chapter 12 when there was a famine in the land that had gone down to Egypt. Um, you know, previously in, in uh, Canaan there was a famine. Because, you know, if you think of the, the, look at that territory, you look at the Nile River. And if you look at any map like we talked about last week, on either side of that Nile River is fertile, fertile land. Even in a drought, they're going to have all kinds of water to water their crops and water their animals. And uh, like we saw in the, in the dream that was given about the famine to Pharaoh, uh, he was by the river. That's what they put their confidence in. And rightly so, because when it, you know, the rest of the country is desert. And then you go to the east, and it's all Saudi Arabia these days, and all desert. 
and all. The only other rivers would have been maybe the Tigris and the Euphrates up to the north, but um, that was over the mountains and through a lot of land, and the, they were down at the southern end of Israel. Um, or back then it would have been Canaan, but, uh, and Egypt was right there, so they went over to Egypt when there was a drought like that, when there was a famine like that. And uh, it would have been not as severe where there was so much water. There would have been plenty. And as it turns out, Joseph had been there, and they had been laying up reserves. Now, the, this, the word says here, what verse is that? In, um, he talks about them being Israel and uh, the 12 sons of Jacob were now Israel and Israel went down the Bible refers to Jacob uh, throughout as Jacob and uh, but the sons of Israel and Jacob is known as Israel as they go out to buy that grain Almighty God is also the God of Israel he's the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and so when the Bible refers to Jacob, and sometimes it's in the very same verse talking about Jacob and talking about Israel. And it's a curious thing. I, I started studying on that. And I thought, well, this has, there has to be a reason for this. There's no uh, words or anything in the Bible that aren't there intentionally by the Lord for us. And it's not the same word translated differently. There are two separate words, Jacob and Israel. And so we read in, in Genesis 32 that he was no longer called Jacob because Remember, he wrestled with God and with man, and he prevailed. And what that meant was, you know, he would not let go. It's not like he defeated the Lord and prevailed over him. He just would not let go until he saw his face, until he knew his name. He asked his name, and he wanted to know the Lord, and he wouldn't let go until he knew the Lord, knew who it was that he was wrestling with. And so, but from this point on, uh, he was called uh, Israel, but still often referred to as Jacob when speaking about him, but when speaking about the covenant, when speaking about the children of Israel, the, the descendants, the nation that would be, it's always referred to then as Israel. And it's like that throughout scriptures. There's a lot of exceptions. There's a lot of places in the same verse where he's called Jacob and where he's called Israel. It's a great study. I'd encourage you to do it. Um, it's exhaustive. <laughs> Not exhausting, but it's a, it's, a big, it's a good study to see how and why the Lord would call uh, them, you know, two different names. Now, in Ezekiel, when the Lord gathers his people back, which we saw in, in May 14th, 1948, and leading up to that many uh, years, Israel was slowly being gathered back into the land, not as 12 separate tribes, but as one nation, the nation Israel. And in Ezekiel, he calls it Jacob. I'll be working with Jacob again because he's brought the two, uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah back together. No more are they two, but now it's back one nation, Israel, and he calls him Jacob there. And so it seems as though the Lord calls him Jacob when he's dealing with that one and uh, calls him Israel when he's talking about the nation of peoples and descendants and tribes, uh, if that makes sense to you. But... Um, and it's also true that God will make a covenant with Israel. He made his covenant with Abraham, a covenant confirmed with Isaac, and a covenant with Jacob at Bethel, remember, and the latter reaching up to heaven. And uh, he will also, as we study, if we continue to study through scriptures, uh, see how he makes a covenant with the children of Israel as well. In verses 6 through 17, Joseph was the governor of all the land 
No one does anything uh, without his consent. Now they come and they get there and they bow down to him. And when he gets up, you know, when they get up, he sees them, he recognizes them, but immediately acts like a stranger, acts like, and he's harsh with them. Now, again, you know, he, they don't recognize him. It's been 17 years, or he was 17 years old the last time they saw him, and now he's 37 and 38 years maybe, um, all shaved, all dressed up and walking like an Egyptian. They didn't know the difference, and, and he has the highest position among the Egyptians. But it says he remembers the dream that he had. And all of a sudden, here's Joseph seeing God do what he said he was going to do. And you know that touches our hearts when we see that. And you've you got to know that when he sees these things, all that he's been through and all this position he's sitting in now, and he sees what the Lord's been doing and he sees it happen right before his eyes. And so he begins to find a way to see if they'll bring everyone back because there's still Jacob and there's still um, Benjamin up in, uh, still in Canaan. And so he says, you guys are spies. And they say, no, we're not guilty of that. Now we'll find out that they did start to feel a little guilty. They st- still did have a, a sorrow, a godly sorrow. Um, but here they're saying, no, that's not why we're here. We need food for our father, and we have another brother, and, and our brother is gone, and a brother that's gone now. And, and so they just start pouring out everything. And we'll see later in the next chapter that Joseph was kind of pressing him for some of these details, wanting to know. Um, Joseph wants to see Benjamin. And now he has a way to hold on to one of these guys and they can go back. And if they want to have their brother back, they're going to come back down and uh, they're going to bring Benjamin with him. And so he calls them spies. He throws them in prison and was going to send one of them back to get Benjamin. Three days later, and I know if you've looked at that uh, parallels between the Lord and, and uh, Joseph and his life, you'll see that's one of them. Uh, they were thrown in prison three days and condemned, and our Lord was also condemned to death and hung on the cross and was in Sheol for three days, and then he was raised up. But um, all along through this, the context, remember, is God calling and having a covenant making his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and with their descendants. Jacob knew, remember, that he would, God was taking care of him. He was going to watch out for him. He was going to provide. He was going to protect. protect. And uh, he knew that God would have a way to accomplish all this. And so he sent them to Egypt so that they would live and not die. They're not going to die of starvation. Jacob knew that. He knew that God had a calling on their life. And... Um, but he was still a sojourner, like his father and grandfather. At one point, you know, he must have been told that God said that they would be oppressed. Remember in, in the covenant uh, with Abraham, the first thing God says to him, you know, for now, you stay here because you're, you're going to go down for four generations. You're going to go for 400 years down into uh, a land, um, a foreign land, it says, and... Uh, that's Genesis 15, and you'll be oppressed as slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. Um, that was the first thing during the, when God made his covenant with Abraham. Now, I would not doubt one minute that Abraham would pass on to his son Isaac, and Isaac would pass on to Jacob 
what was said, what was done at this covenant. It was recorded. Uh, Moses recorded this uh, after the fact because of the testimony of word of mouth from one generation to the next, when one father to son was carried on. And so certainly Jacob knew that God was going to accomplish everything he said he was going to. But he also knew somehow, somewhere along the line, they're going to end up down for 400 years, which turned out to be about four generations before they would return and uh, take possession of the promised land. But Jacob also knew that he was with him. Remember, to provide for him. He says, if you provide for me and see that it's so, then you will be my God, if you remember and when he was at Bethel. And so all of this also would have been passed on to Joseph as well. Joseph was the son whom Jacob loved. He had the many-colored coat. Do you think Joseph, uh, Jacob would withhold anything from Joseph and all that he knew about the covenants and all that he knew about God and what he was going to do and even to the raising up of a seed through all the families of the earth being blessed. So Joseph knew all this too. And Joseph has got a little bit of a view here seeing how God is going to provide and keep seeing the famine that came through and um, the nations that were coming around. And uh, for, you know, for like Esther, for such a time as this, here's Joseph in the position to be able to provide for them. So um, all this would have been passed on to Joseph as well. And it says, he tells his brothers that he also feared God. And he tells his brothers so that they might remember that God is in all this. And therefore, do what he says. You know, he's not revealing who he is, but he's kind of getting them reminded of it. And so he says, do what, uh, you know, I say so that you'll live and not die. And so the first thing that pops into their head uh, as you look at uh, 18 through 24 is what they had done to Joseph. They didn't know this was Joseph. But what's the first thing that pops in their heads? This conviction. This is what's coming to us because of what we did to our brother 20 years ago. And this is the, all the while that uh, they'd been deceiving Jacob and never telling him the truth about Joseph and that he's probably alive somewhere. And uh, they don't know whose house in Egypt or where he ended up, but he's um, very possibly still a servant or slave in somebody's house. And here's Jacob, you know, who has long mourned him and has been bereaved of his, his uh, beloved son, Joseph. And they're just, uh, you know, saying, you know, Reuben says, I told you so, you know. And now this, his blood is required of us. You know, they've been going on living their lives, going about their lives for 20 years, and all the while, you know, keeping that secret from, from Jacob. But, you know, all of a sudden, something comes along that shakes them down to their core. We're stuck. We've got to go back to our father and tell him that there's another son that we left down in Egypt, and we can't even go back again until we bring Benjamin, Rachel's other son, whom he loved. And uh, so they've got to go back and tell him. And reality hits. And all of a sudden they're going, this is because of what we did to Joseph. Conviction. Now, there's a great emotion of joy when Joseph hears these guys. They don't know that he can hear him and understand him. But he, he has to go find a place where he can cry and weep over this. Because they're acknowledging what they did to him. And he can hear it. And they don't know that he can understand what they're saying. And it's the application for us is, is that joy, that weeping that happens when full truth comes out, when hearts are truly open and full confession is made. 
but only when the person who was harmed desires to reconcile and forgive, like Joseph did. You know, um, it's a comfort. Uh, truly, the love of the one that has that one has for those that are, have maybe hurt them, and if they hear them confess and they hear them say that, it brings an emotion. It brings a great joy. It brings that that. Uh, uh, where, jo- where Joseph is just crying. Yeah, they're acknowledging what they did to me. But only when the person who is harmed desires to be reconciled. Otherwise, people sometimes want to be vindicated. There's nothing but condemnation and punishment and spiteful you know, vindication on people. Sometimes when they don't have that love for the person, they just feel wrong, and yeah, you're right, you should be sorry. You know, what a difference. It's, it's an emotion of great joy. For Joseph, they has to go away and find a place to cry and weep. And some people are just as hard as a stone. Doesn't matter what you say to them. That's right, you pay me every last penny. And the Lord talks about that servant who was forgiven much. And then he went out and shook down another servant that was forgiven barely anything. And, he, and the Lord says, you know what? That's, uh, you're not going to be forgiven for what you all did. And you're going to be thrown in prison until you pay every penny because you won't even forgive that guy the 20 bucks and you owed me a million. And you guys know the story. If you want to turn to Luke 15, we get a little glimpse of this. What Joseph was seeing and what made him so joyful and that he would weep. It touched him with such emotion. Luke 15, verses 7 through 10. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need not repent. Um, I wonder if I gave you the wrong verses. Anyway, or, or what woman, having a, a ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found a peace, the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is uh, joy in the presence of the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. You know, we saw when, or we, we read where, when the Lord was born and the angels were on the surrounding hills. Here's the one that came to reconcile men. To God, and there's the angels around rejoicing. Notice here it says, "In the presence of angels, there is joy." Who's got the joy? Well, it's got to be the Father, right? And here's the the angels that are uh, in the presence of that. The angels of God over one sinner who repents. You and me, the day we turned, and those that we share with, and those that we we give the gospel to, and they turn. You know, it's great joy. Um, that joy equals joy and gladness because of the one uh, who you have the joy over, because of the person who are one's joy to begin with. And that, that uh, word defined there, the word joy, that's why there is such rejoicing over Jesus when he came. And we'll also see, here's Joseph, he knew he was in the position that he was for the preservation of life of his fathers and his brothers. And going back to Genesis um, verses 25 through 28, um, 42, 25, 28, Joseph sets them up. 
now by putting these monies back in their sacks, and when they find it, it says their hearts failed them. Um, what that means, the definition really is it goes forth or goes out. In other words, their heart, it was, it was gone. They, all they had been holding on to is gone, and they know they're helpless. Their heart fails them. They didn't have a heart attack. They didn't faint. No, the heart of hearts in them all of a sudden is gone. There's helplessness, complete helplessness. Their heart failed them. They're afraid. And that word there, there's two times we'll see the word afraid, is hered or tremble, quake, or move about just in a fashion where you're terrified. And you probably can imagine, you know, somebody who's in such a situation that they're just, they're skitching about because they're absolutely terrified. And they have to say, what has God done to us? This is beyond themselves. They're helpless. It doesn't fit with what God was going to do to provide for them. Here they are. They, they find the money in their sacks and what, their brother's still back there. There's no way they're going to be able to go back there now. How are we going to go back? We're thieves. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill us and all. Here's the most powerful man and he was agitated just by seeing us in the first place. He spoke, speaks harshly to him. Who knows if they were seeing one after the next come in and Joseph is just fine with everybody else. He sees them. And all of a sudden, there's a difference. He's harsh to begin with. So this is beyond them. All of a sudden, they're stuck. They got this money and it doesn't belong to them. And uh, so in verse 29 through 34, they return to Jacob, recount what happened. They tell him they had to leave Simeon with Pharaoh's governor. And now he wants to bring Benjamin to Egypt. And Jacob's likely thinking, uh, we'll see about that, because that ain't going to happen. And in verses 35 to 38, Jacob sees the money himself that should have been used to pay for the grain, and he knows that they could be held guilty as thieves before the most powerful man in Egypt, the man that has his son Simeon, the man that demands they bring Benjamin, his only remaining son by Rachel, the man they would eventually need to return for food in order to survive. And it says Jacob and his sons, when they saw the money in all their sacks, was afraid. Now that word afraid is different. That word is yer. Uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. But it's that word that means revere and have reverence for, to stand in awe of, to honor, respect, with a godly fear. It's different than terror, than shaking. It's not that trembling that we saw in verse 25 so that their hearts failed them. This is a different fear. It's, a, it's in other words, they're standing back going, what is this that's happening? And uh, not with that terror, but with this amazement how this could be happening. And this obviously becomes a, now that they find it in all their sacks, this wasn't a mistake. This wasn't somebody doing a miscalculation. This was intentional by those in charge. Somebody told somebody to do this and put it all back in their, their sacks. And so someone in Egypt is specifically targeting them and also serious about changing their chances of ever freeing Benjamin. And so all of a sudden they can't go back. And, uh, and, uh, or Simeon, I should say, setting uh, Simeon free. Jacob is bereaved. Here he is now, looking at all these situations. He knows that he, they can't go back unless Benjamin goes with them. And Simeon's gone. 
Joseph is gone. And the word bereaved in this text means to, to make childless. Now, he's got 12 sons. But remember the one he loved, Rachel? Remember she was the last one to bear kids? And so in his old age, Joseph is born, and then, and then uh, Benjamin is born, and he's blessed in his old age. But uh, Rachel, Jacob's love, would be as though she had been barren if he loses Benjamin now on top of losing Joseph. And, um, you know, the ten sons remember how they sold Joseph. They were already talking about it down in Egypt, saying, we did this. It's coming upon us because of this. And, uh, you know, they have sorrow over what they did. And now they're even helpless to do anything, and they're going to bring more sorrow upon Jacob because they're going to be helpless to save Simeon, and they've got to go back. They'll be helpless to save Benjamin. And it's a godly sorrow. And the only other cross-reference tonight is 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to turn there, just to spend a little bit of time. Um, what is godly sorrow? In 2 Corinthians 7, just 9 through 12, and much of this is taken from, I did my own word studies, but similar things, and is we've, I don't know if we've uh, handed this out in the past. I went ahead and put it on the, the table in the back just to take as a, as a handout for you if you haven't done that when we did this a, a long time ago, a year ago or something. But it's a book by David Hawking called Whatever Happened to Repentance? And he takes this passage, and we're going to do a little bit of what he does, but he's got a much greater study in there. It's really worth having for a couple of reasons. The most important reason is for yourself. And everything we're going to be talking about in the next little bit here is for us, for ourselves. It's not for us to look at somebody else and say, oh, yep, I know a guy like that. He needs to do this. No, that's not what it's about. But then if there is somebody who wants to know, and you want to be able to minister to them, what is it to really truly repent? Then you'll have this Bible study. And so I'd recommend grabbing that. They're, like I said, they're on the table on your way out. But Second um, Corinthians 7, 9 through 12, says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from, not, from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world, well, that produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, and I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. The word sorrow there means pain, grief, annoyance, affliction. This is what happens to you as the consequences for your actions and deeds and the way you live, start coming back to you. It brings pain, whether it's in your conscience, whether it's conviction of the Holy Spirit, or whether it's an affliction right on your very person because of something that was done. And so this is a sorrow. And when it comes to pain, 
comes time to pay the consequences for your sin, there is going to be sorrow. There is a godly sorrow and a sorrow of the world he talks about. Godly sorrow produces repentance, which brings salvation. The word repentance simply means turning away from. That's all it means. Repentance is some big scary thing. No, it means you were walking this way. You turn around you start walking the other way. You leave it behind. You don't look back. You don't put your hand to the plow and don't look back or you're going to run into something. And so when it comes to repentance, um, it just simply means to turn and turn away from it. Now the sorrow of the world, you know, produces death. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, produces, the word there means what is rendered, what is accomplished, what's achieved, what are its results, what someone is made fit for. In other words, the, the, it, the product is what it does to you to make you fit for whatever's got to be, whatever's going to come, that sorrow, uh, that, uh, the consequences. And so that um, produces in those that have a godly sorrow, it makes them ready and fit for repentance. And those that have a worldly sorrow, well, we'll read about that in a little bit, but there's nothing in them that changes. There's nothing in them. They don't do the repentance. They don't do the 180. They're feeling terrible, and they know that it's probably for something they did, but they don't care. They're hard-hearted. They don't do anything about it. Uh, so that's what produces in them. That's what's rendered. That's what they, they're made fit for. Diligence, as you read through these, there's seven characteristics of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. One is the word diligence or carefulness in the, in the King James. And that just simply means with haste, earnestness, and striving after. You're quick to just go, let's see exactly what this is. First thing is being, uh, you know, refers to speed and the eagerness to respond when you're confronted like this. The word clearing, the clearing of themselves, is, comes from the word apologia. Well, what does that remind you of? Apology, right? Well, it's a little bit more than that. It simply means speak it for what it is. It's a truthful defense and a reasoning statement, not a, you know, cover your tracks kind of defense. It's an apology, yes, but it's rooted in the desire to be forgiven for what one has done, not, you know, to explain it off or to justify. And um, then the next one is indignation. Indignation is the pain, that sorrow. It's that pain. It's that irritation, that vexation that you feel upon yourself and you take upon yourself for what you had done and that, um, that you wanted to have that. You want to know. You want to put yourself in the shoes of the one that you did wrong to. From the verb, it means sore, displeasing in the rest of scriptures. It really only shows up, this word, indignation, uh, in this Greek only shows up in this couple of verses in in Second uh, Corinthians, but it's from a verb that seems that means sore, sorely displeased or sore displeasure. In other words, it means you're feeling the pain for what you have caused to happen. Now, fear. The next one is phobos, which means that dread and that terror, like we read about when they had realized what was in their their knapsacks or their sacks of grain. Now, it's not an irrational phobia. You think of phobos, and you think, oh, no, that means phobia. No, it's not a, not a phobia for some influence that's on you or something that, that's bothering you. 
But it literally means that you are terrorized by what you caused. It terrorizes you what you did. And it's back to, to make you feel that terror. And so the next one is the vehement desire that these Corinthians, that Paul saw in them. And it's, that word is really simply longing. And it's only used in this, these verses here in 2 Corinthians. Um, but it, in context, it's a longing from the Holy Spirit to respond to God a conviction, aware of God in the sorrow you're feeling, and rather than run and hide, your reaction is to go to the Lord, not to hide from him. It's that kind of longing, that vehement desire that Paul saw in them. And so the next one, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like your aching desire that you want to go to God for forgiveness and reconciliation and freedom. As you start to put all these together, you're starting to see what the picture of true godly sorrow is. Vindication, or I should say zeal, is the next one. What zeal, he says. Zeal simply means excitement of mind. In other words, you've seen people who are zealous. They're just, they're ready to go. That, that it basically is an intensity that fits with the issue that you're dealing with. A fervor of spirit and a fierceness is what that zeal means. But mostly in Scripture, it's a jealous zeal. You know, the Lord was jealous for his house and zealous for his house uh, and it was prophesied about him in this context it's, it simply means it's a genuine effort a, a, an excited you know a zealous intense effort and a strong desire to turn from sin and turn to godliness it's a real thing it's a desire it's not just something that you say it's not just something oh yeah you know I've, I've been there I've done that and no, it's, it's in you, and you don't have to say it to anybody. It's just in you. It's a zeal to turn and to uh, lay aside sin and live a godly life. And then finally, um, vindication. Now that word vindication there means revenge, vengeance, or punishment. But what it is is a willingness, not vindictiveness, a willingness to accept the judgment of God, the consequences of that disgrace of that shame, uh, the humiliation and loss, uh, with no effort on your part to justify, defend, or excuse your sinful behavior. Well, that's a lot, you know, but it's the truth, isn't it? I mean, you, you can apologize to somebody for something and figure, that's it, I said I'm sorry. But you can go out of your way and make sure with all of your zeal, with all your effort, with a genuine sincerity of heart to make it right, to, to acknowledge that it was truly wrong. And, to, you know, and you're, you want to go, and you want to get there so that you can get forgiveness. It's not this sheepish little, you know, kind of justifying what you did the whole way and saying, you know, it's only because this happened that, that I did that. No, you, you take it all. You, you own it. In other words, Paul says to the Corinthians, in all things, what things? these aspects of godly sorrow and repentance. This was in the hearts of the Corinthians. Now the backstory on this is there was a, a, a brother that had sinned and they just ignored it. Um, he was, it's, it was just a terrible sin, you know, sexual sin with a relative. And so, but they, they were so carnal, it just was the way things were in their culture. So, you know, what are we going to do? Let's, you know, sure, you can come to church. He says, no, you can't, carry, you can't let this carry on. You have to put this guy out, turn him over to Satan so that he can learn repentance. 
he can see the shame in what he's doing and, and you know, deal with some consequences and then take him back. And so when they did that, you know, and, and uh, that was the correction that they needed and that's the thing that they repented of. But this is a perfect definition of godly sorrow. It's a biblical definition. Look in the Bible anywhere to see such a clear list of, of words and then look up what they mean. And so I, again, recommend this book by David Hawkin. You can grab it on your way out. He goes through the Old Testament in repentance. You know, what's the type of guys who did not have godly sorrow? Well, there was Esau. Remember his sorrow? He was only sorry because, you know, he found up that he couldn't get the inheritance. He couldn't get the first, the uh, birthright and all. His, and the Bible says that he even sought repentance with tears, but he wasn't repenting. He didn't want repentance. And so it didn't mean that he was seeking and trying to repent. No, he was full of tears because he couldn't find repentance. He, he didn't want to change. He just wanted to get off the hook. And another one was Judas. Um, Judas, uh, and again, David goes through these in his booklet here. I'll let you do that. But um, uh, an example of somebody who was, was certainly emotional and sorrowful and all, but he didn't want to change. He didn't want to to correct what he had done. All he can do is try and throw the money somewhere and then he took back and then he goes and hangs himself, which is the ultimate you know, selfish act, you know, instead of doing what he should do to make things right. And um, so some examples of worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance and that leads to death. So, you know, Paul says to these guys, and all these things... We saw that in you. And all these things are present also in the life of a true believer who knows that they're standing before God. What do you got to hide? And why would you be uh, you know, cowardly and run away from the Lord when you know he loves you? When you stand before God, you go to him with this. We can go to God with our sins. He sees it all anyway. You know? And you know, we know the gospel. Not only that, right? What happens to our sins? Well, they were put on the Lord. They were put on him. We don't have any shame anymore. We don't have any guilt anymore. He took that all on himself. And that's the truth of the gospel. You know, Jesus was one of the first ones, the first words out of his mouth uh, when uh, he started his ministry was repent. It wasn't, oh, everybody come get saved. I'm here. You know, no, it's repent. Sin is dealt with in Christianity. It's not covered up and so you can keep on sinning and you can keep on doing what you want to do with your own life. It's, it's something that's been dealt with, and as it's dealt with, it's put away. And a godly sorrow over our sins, why we came to the Lord, a godly sorrow is going to be our desire to put these things away. So, you know, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Um, either you hear that, and you have a godly sorrow, or a worldly sorrow, like Esau and Judas. They felt regret but nothing that would change him. And again, it was Hebrews where it says that he found no place for repentance. They had a real emotion, bitter crying, but uh, not an emotion that, that led to change. Now the sons of Jacob were sorrowful for what they had done to Joseph, and they realized they were facing consequences. Reuben tries to offer his own two sons, but who would do that? You know, he's certainly sorrowful. He certainly uh, has got a godly sorrow. And he wishes he could repent to the point where he would say, Jacob, you can take my two sons. And I'm thinking, 
who would do that? Why would Jacob want to give up two of his grandkids? You know, and so, but this is what Reuben thought would somehow fix things. Um, but again, that would even cause uh, more bereavement. Anyway, Jacob refused to let them take Benjamin at the end of chapter 42. And we'll try. 43, um, now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back and buy buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and will buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to you, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you even had another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and about our family. Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told them according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your other brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you also and all of our little ones. They're going to starve to death otherwise. Myself will be a surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land with your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand to, uh, back to your, um, and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also, arise and go to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And so the men took the present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand, and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for these men, will dine with me at noon." And the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in? And so he made a case against us, and they, uh, so that he could make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. And said, O sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in the full weight, so that we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And the men brought the men 
man brought the men to Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and they gave them donkeys feed to eat and then they made the present ready for Joseph coming at noon for they heard that they would not eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. And he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And when he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, This is your younger brother of whom you spoke to me. Or, and he asked, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went to his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out and restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. And so they set him a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. And he took servings to them from before him, and Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So back in verse 1, the, the famine grows severe, relentless, continues with no end in sight. Jacob is now faced with starvation and asks them, why did you treat me so badly that you would take my son, um, or that uh, you would uh, take Simeon and leave Simeon there, and how how uh, Joseph is gone and the only one I have left, and here you go and tell this guy about uh, Benjamin, and, and now he wants to bring him down. But, you know, they say this Pharaoh, he's powerful, his governor, he, and he asked these specific questions, these particular questions. He was prying, he knew, he saw them, he recognized them, and they didn't have it figured out, but, you know, they pinned him down, or he pinned them down, asked the questions, and no... Now here's Jacob having to give up the only remaining son of Rachel, the last thing he wants to do. And to the extent now, remember Judah was saying, you know, why if we hadn't waited so long, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But Joseph, or Jacob didn't want to send Benjamin down there. And so he, he waited until the last minute. They probably have hardly anything left to the point where they're forced now to go. They're going to starve to death if they don't. And he's got to let Benjamin go with them. And he wasn't about to until there was nothing left. And verses 8 through 14, Judah, interestingly enough, says, um, if they had not waited to the last bit, they wouldn't be so desperate. And he says, they have to go in order for us to live. And, you know, he will be responsible for Benjamin. Well, Judah was the one that wasn't even responsible to Tamar enough to keep his promises, remember? Judah wasn't... Uh, you know, he was the one that talked his brothers into selling Joseph so they could make some money. Reuben said, let's take him out, let's take him back. We can't do this thing. Judah says, nah, let's sell him, let's make some money. Nevertheless, Jacob has no choice and he has to agree to send Benjamin along with Judah down to Egypt. And he sends gifts, he doubles the money to compensate what was found in their bags and money to buy the food with. And so basically, he's uh, 
taking what they had found and adding either interest or just doubling to it and then sending that back and then on top of that, so three times the amount that they originally took down, um, he's sending with his, and along with the, all these gifts, you know, nuts and almonds and, and different things and spices and something to, to uh, appease and hopefully win the favor of this. And so Jacob knew how God had spared Isaac when Abraham was told to slay him. But here's Joseph is gone, as far as he knows, and now Benjamin's going to be gone. What is God doing? It wasn't God commanding Jacob to give up his sons like Abraham. It was a famine. And it's this, this knucklehead down in Egypt that won't allow us to have any, any uh, food or without bringing Benjamin down. What is happening? And he knows that this has to be God. You know, he had faith. He knew what uh, Abraham, the covenant, and Isaac and his covenant he made with uh, uh, Jacob. And so he had that faith, and he had to know that even though this wasn't what it seems um, like God would be doing, God's still in it. His faith was such that he could accept losing Benjamin along with Joseph, and then, you know, that it was up to God just to, if he's going to be bereaved to his grave, well, then he's going to be bereaved to his grave. So in verses 15 through 25, they end up going to Joseph. They find out, um, indeed, that Joseph's servant had had the money. It was him that put it in their sacks. So they're starting to see here that Joseph is the one that's been showing this particular interest in them and their family uh, and to the point where he made a plan to get them to come down and bring all of their family. In verses 26 through 34, he brought Simeon out. When he sees Benjamin, he can't contain his emotion. Again, that, that joy of seeing what happened. And God really did fulfill the dream about his brother and bring them, his brothers, and bring them uh, to Egypt. He sets their place at the table in the order of their ages, in the order of the first to the last, and to their astonishment. You know, they're, they're, they got to wonder about something. Did this guy really have the power to divine, you know, things? Some Egyptian leaders, how did he get in this kind of power without being able to do these things, you know? Um, and so they have to wonder. They're, they're astonished. And, and then he gives Benjamin five times more food than the rest of them. Now, it's funny that the Egyptians find it repulsive to eat with the Hebrews for some reason. And I guess you can do with that what you want, but table manners are different from household to household, I guess. And it's, um, but it says they feasted. The feast goes on until they're able to uh, enjoy themselves, and they were all merry together, 12 brothers. And um, so we will all have sorrow as we kind of wind things up here. In our, for our sins at some point. You know, we will all have that sorrow. But God desires that all men come to repentance, right? He desires that nobody would perish, but that we come to repentance and have eternal life. Many, it says, will harden their hearts, and the conviction on, on their lives will only bring about a worldly sorrow. There's not going to be any repentance. And they'll feel the pain but they don't repent, and ultimately it leads to death and eternity of fire. And Jesus, though, he said few. 
will have a godly sorrow that brings repentance. All right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few be there that find it. They have diligence. They have truth about what they've done. They feel the pain and the sore displeasure for it. They have a godly fear, longing for God's forgiveness, a genuine zeal to stop sinning and live a godly life. They have a real shame and a knowledge of the disgrace for their sin, and they don't make any effort to justify it, defend it, or excuse their sin. Those that have a godly sorrow that brings repentance. What a Savior we have. He took all that on himself. Who died in our place, justifies us and cleanses us from all sin. Amen. So in the weeks ahead, you know, it's a, it's a narrative that kind of goes through the whole rest of the life of Joseph. And, and uh, you know, Lord Terry's will be here and by Thanksgiving or so. It might even be into Exodus. I don't know. But let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, letting us know the truth and, uh, Lord, giving us the grace to, to draw close to you and, and seek you in repentance. And, Lord, for teaching us what it truly means so that we're not without hope, so that we know we can truly put our trust in you and what you did. Um, thank you for that. And I pray you just continue to, to cause us to grow in the knowledge of grace gracious to one another and fully knowing the grace that you've shown us and being forgiving of one another, knowing how much you've forgiven us. I just pray that you'd work all these things in our hearts and minds. And as you, you do this in our lives, the world would see it and that they'd be drawn to you, that you'd be lifted up and get all the glory in our lives and we can point others to that joy that comes with reconciliation to you. And we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.